Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the difference between the kind of political messaging that feels like the right thing to say, and the reframed messages that actually get political results that allow for progressive policies to get passed. Sources today include How We Win, Future Hindsight, the Tom Hartman Program, Deconstructed, and Start Making Sense, with additional members-only clips from How We Win. And two quick notes before we start. The first is that the Stitcher podcast app is shutting its doors, and so this is just a public service announcement that if you happen to use that app, you should export your playlist of shows to another app, ASAP. If you're looking for a recommended alternative, I've been using Pocket Casts for a lot of years now. And the second note is that we're launching a membership drive this month, with memberships available at a discount for July only. More details at the end of the show, or read about it at bestoftheleft.com support. There's a link in the show notes to find it. We did a project called Yellow Brick Road where we interviewed, and I remember telling my husband, by the way, like, we're going to hate each other before this election because we're just going to be in interviews all the time. But it was worth it because we had to get Trump out. But we interviewed 45 people every week, the same 45 people for four weeks, undecided voters, um, for about half an hour to an hour each to kind of understand their process and what was happening to them as it was getting closer and closer to game day. You know, what was going to make their, their, their decision between Trump or Biden or Mickey Mouse or whoever the hell. And there was a, a, a um, uh, I'll call him Steve, even though we know his name. Um, but Steve is a, have, a wealthy. Does it have to be Steve? I mean, okay, it can oh, be Steve. Oh. That's fine. <laughs> you know, it's always a Steve. Uh, it's always Justin. a Steve. I don't know. This, this fellow, <laughs> this fellow uh, was an incredible African-American um, businessman who was not sure whether he was going to vote for Trump or Biden. And I remember the things that he talked. I mean, he talked about like encounters with the KKK and, you know, and his ancestors, like he, he had a very uh, emotionally resonant, he had a story about uh, his experiences as a black man uh, where he lived and he had, he had a bunch of kids and he had a, bu- a business. And I remember him saying to me, you know, look, they can call me the N word as long as my taxes are low. I remember him saying this and being like, Oh my God. Wow. And he was Trump. But then two weeks before the election, He saw how Biden talked about race in America and he saw how Trump talked about race in America and his son had been um, uh, pinned down um, in a mall Mm. and held down at gunpoint that week. And I remember he kept on talking about how his son was a nerd. His son was a nerd and like, you know, he wasn't a troublemaker. He was a nerd. He was a nerd. He's a nerd. He couldn't do that. And he realized at that moment that um, he said, you know, I've been, we've been settling for crumbs. We've been, we've been said it was okay to sit at the table, you know, but we, we couldn't afford to eat. We, um, and, and, and Biden is going to be somebody who can help us with race in America and Trump doesn't care about us at all. And and so that was what shifted it for him, like seeing his son and seeing the, the effects of, of racism on, on his immediate family. So, so I remember that. I remember that distinctly. I also remember, you know, talking to this one woman, um, was on a disability and she talked a lot about shootings in America. It's funny because there have been times I'm continually in field work and I hear a lot of people tell stories about the fear that they have around guns in America. Mm-hmm. But this one woman was talking about it and she, she likened just getting ahead in America as sort of a climbing, a climbing a ladder. And that every time there was a shooting, 
the um the the rung of the ladder would fall out under her feet like she couldn't catch her breath she couldn't she couldn't get ahead and um she she wasn't able to work and she talked about how she knew in her heart she knew that she didn't matter in america because she didn't work she didn't work and so she was useless and 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 it was it was one of those moments that was so painful but it was um it really illuminated for for me for us at the time oh wow and this goes really deep how um how we think about work and how we think about value and it really um and it led to this understanding that we did a national poll um where we learned that 65% of Americans don't feel like they matter at all um, in America. Whoa. Wow. Right. Right. Um, So, so that, that led us down in, you know, a whole course of thinking. And, and, and now as a result of that, you know, we're looking at things like, do you matter? Do you matter to, you know, do you feel that, do you feel like you're in control? Um, And that's something we explore as well. Um, People do not feel like they're in control. um, And, and, and and so how do we then, um, you know, speak to that, speak to that state, but then also restore those things that people have have need for. Um, so, yeah, those are some things that I've, I've learned along the way. But, you know, I, I'm so grateful for the amazing people who have shared so many thoughts and, and feelings. You co-founded Air America, which I miss dearly. I loved listening to Air America. How has your thinking on progressive media changed over the years? What do you think is needed the most? I mean, obviously, right-wing, when it comes to alternative media, right-wing voices own the battlefield. And we are just fighting to inch back every bit that we can. But what's your thinking on that? It's a very scary landscape, and it's gotten scarier over the years. There are now three media corporations, which are far right-wing in nature. Sinclair is the one that everybody knows, but there's a couple of others that are sort of sisters to Sinclair in terms of their right-wing ideology. Those three media companies now own 50% of local TV stations. Mm. Uh, So they control the news uh, on, on those local... TV stations, and it's like a propaganda. It's like a a local Fox News. I'm just in the process right now of doing an analysis in different battleground states, and they just dominate in those kind of small and medium sized markets. You know, Youngstown, Akron, Flint. You just go down the list. Uh, the Quad Cities in you know Iowa and Illinois, um, state after state, and these right-wing media outlets just dominate them. So we really need for progressive funders and small-dollar contributors to really engage in the media battle and to support media outlets that are more progressive or that are just, frankly, I would just take even. (laughs) You know, I would just take like an outlet that was neither progressive nor conservative because right now, We've got to have so much of the far right, and we just need a variety of different kinds of media outlets. Now, the good news is that a lot of people now are getting their information from a wide variety of sources. They're getting information now, not just on their local TV station, but on podcasts and on different kinds of radio stations and on online, different different news outlets that are based online. So there's a lot of different places where people go are going to get their news. 
But I can tell you that the landscape right now is overwhelmingly tilted toward the right. Yeah. The media landscape. The TV news media landscape. And, and alternative, and, yeah. And alternative. Yeah, and radio, too. And uh, radio, but, too. But, mm. Um, but especially TV. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you look at the podcast charts, like, you know, the conservative podcasts are consistently flooding the top podcast ones. Even yeah. even the big shows like Pod Save America and, and, and those often are dwarfed by the, I don't want to name the names, but the not so truthy ones. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the fake newsy ones. Yes, the, yeah. the alternative facts. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Well, we want to let you go, and we appreciate your time. It's so great to have you on, but we'll finish with the last question that we ask all of our guests. What brings you hope right now? You already gave us a whole lot of hope with your memo, but what's <laughs> bringing you hope right now? You know, what's bringing me hope is that uh, the American people, the voters, are rejecting right-wing extremism. They did it in 2018. They did it in 2020. They did it in 2022. Not everywhere. There's still plenty of uh, right-wingers win an election. But the overall trend is that Americans are rejecting that kind of extremism, even though it's being spoon-fed them on the local TV station, even though it's being spoon-fed them on Fox News, right? But they're rejecting those basic ideas. And that, to me, is a great sign, and and it means that we can be hopeful. Speaking of voter suppression, there is a growing threat of election subversion. And as we learned, of course, on January 6th of 2021, there was a plot to overturn the results of the 2020 election. And we all know that fact-checking is incredibly boring. But in the meantime, Democrats and Republicans are calling completely different things the big lie. You know, what the Democrats say it is is different from how Republicans are using it. So how do we fight election subversion with no agreed facts? Oh, it is very, very difficult. You're absolutely right. One thing that I want to pick apart, the adherence to the real big lie that there was any kind of malfeasance in the 2020 election when, in fact, it was the most observed, the most counted, the most verified election that we've ever had in our lifetimes. Yes, we see that around 30% of American voters actually continue to believe that not only was there some form of manipulation, but that it was enough to actually have an impact in the results. And of course, the majority of Republicans by quite a bit believe that. But When you actually unpack it, let's just take my home state. I don't live there anymore, but I'm from there, Wisconsin. There are people who live in Wisconsin who fundamentally cannot wrap their brain around the fact that the majority of people, by a very slim margin, but still the majority of people, the majority of Wisconsinites, rejected Donald Trump. That is the thing that they cannot conceive. They cannot conceive that the majority of their neighbors picked Joe Biden and did not pick Donald Trump, especially because they picked Donald Trump, the slim, slim majority of them in 2016. And, you know, we could say this about Michigan, we could say this about Pennsylvania, Georgia, etc. And because they live in these 
communities where everyone around them also voted for Trump. So they're simply like, well, who are these people in Wisconsin or in Michigan or in Pennsylvania? Pick your state. I don't know any of them. They don't go to my church. They're not at my kid's school. You know, they're not at the fish fry. I'm still using the Wisconsin example. Like, what are you talking about? I've never met them. And so when you live surrounded by a reality, which is then at odds with what you see as an outcome, then you have to come up with some sort of causal explanation. And quote unquote, helpfully, Donald Trump and his lying enablers came up with an explanation for them. It's not, in fact, that this is what occurred. In fact, something else nefarious was going on. So I think one of the mistakes that we've made is we've actually not attempted to message about that. We've accepted the opposition's terms, and now we're going to fight about them. So they're going to say there was the F word, fraud. There was fraud. There was fraud. And because of the illusory truth effect, which is a cognitive bias that causes us to rate things that are more familiar. So things that are repeated, people are more likely to believe them to be true if they feel familiar. It's one of many cognitive biases that is why repetition is so incredibly important in messaging. So they say there was fraud, there was fraud, there was fraud. And what do we say? We say there was no fraud. There was no fraud detected. We conducted extensive investigations and the instances of fraud were blah, 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 blah. Did I say fraud again? Have I mentioned fraud? There was no fraud. Can I say fraud again? How about I say it some more? And so, first of all, in negating the other side, we are actually reinforcing their argument because we are, again, in this case, for example, using the F word. But even more broadly, even if we were to make the first immediate fix, the first immediate fix is to say, not there is no fraud, but rather, this was the most observed, recounted, well-administered, and verified election of our lifetimes. And every trusted election administrator from across parties has reaffirmed the correct result. So you say what did happen. You don't push back against what didn't happen. But even with that, what we actually need to be saying is Joe Biden won by a greater margin of popular votes than ever in our history. Joe Biden won more popular votes than any person running in our history. Joe Biden was elected by record numbers of Americans, Americans across race and place, big cities, small ones, suburbs, farms, picked Joe Biden to be our leader. That's what we needed to have been saying. We're running a special discount on memberships this month. Sign up now at bestoftheleft.com support to lock in that discount for as long as you keep your membership and enjoy ad-free versions of the show going forward. But until then... Branding is different. We, we make sure to be clear how it's different from marketing, especially in the political world. We think Democrats are pretty good at the sort of marketing of politics where they're getting out uh, yard signs or mailers, and they're doing it for each individual candidate, each campaign as it comes up. But the key thing, and that's what we're focusing on here, is the branding is actually much more long-term than that. It's much deeper, much more emotional. A brand stays with you for a very long time. It stands for deeper, something emotional, and it affects how you make decisions and how you think about something. So for Democrats, we see each campaign comes up, 
every candidate has to create their own individual personalized brand, whereas there should be a much clearer, cohesive, overarching Democrat brand that goes over all of them so that every Democrat can use that and benefit from it. And, you know, the GOP has been doing this successfully since since the 80s in a big way. You know, ask any random person, what does the Republican Party stand for? And, and they'll say, and good branding and good messaging, typically, you know, gr- the, the rule of threes, you know, they'll say, you know, low taxes, deregulation, and small government. And now the Republicans have been very successful in trying to brand the Democrats as the party of uh, gay people and trans people who are, you know, a threat to your children. And obviously, you know, we don't agree that uh, with that statement, but that's how they're presenting Democrats. Or it's, that Demo- it's, it's gay, gay socialist communists. That's what yeah, exactly. Are. Or that or the Democrats <clears throat> are the party of, of black people, you know, and, and, and this is the message that they've been using on conservative Hispanic radio. In a big way, in the last, I mean, from my colleagues in, in the radio business, what I'm hearing is that conservative Hispanic radio is basically pumping that message really hard. So you've got Republicans trying to brand Democrats and doing it successfully, I think, in many areas, uh, many parts of the country, and Democrats not branding themselves. Is that a uh, reasonable analysis? That's right. Like you said, we see you see it in focus groups, actually. People are able to list off what Republicans stand for, what they care about, what they're fighting for. And it sounds emotionable. It sounds reasonable. It sounds like things they want, like you said. But then you ask them what Democrats stand for, and they're not really able to tell you. They might know a few policy ideas here or there. They might know what one candidate said at one time. But there's not this overarching sense for what does that whole party believe? What are they fighting for? What are their values? That, those things are not clear for people. Right. And, and the irony, of course, is that Democrats do have a whole long list of things almost, you know, 98 percent of Democrats care about. So that's what the book is about, how to get that message out for the long term. Right. And we have, you know, step by step suggestions about how Democrats can and should do that. You talk about how 2017 was a perfect case study of what we did wrong. Can you describe that? Can one of you in chapter one, you say Ossoff in 2017 ah. was a perfect case study of what we do wrong. He right. pushed local rational messages rather than a powerful emotional message that resonated. What does that mean? Yeah, we could, we contrast Ossoff back in that 2017 election, and Daryl was down in Atlanta at that point, yeah. living in Georgia, compared to Senator Ossoff and how he changed. If you recall back in 2017, the election 2018 there are a lot of Democratic candidates who wouldn't even say whether they supported Obama, whether they would even vote for Obama. So it's each individual Democrat out there, no, vote for me, I'm on your side. And they all lost. Remember, uh, Obama used the term, we got shellacked. We lost something like 65 House seats because they had no brand, they had no values, they have no core values that they imparted to the electorate. Ossoff talked about he wanted to make Atlanta a world-class transportation system or something like that. Hmm. In the second election, when he ran for senator, he was a Democrat, a progressive Democrat who cared about health care and women's rights and LGBTQ rights and the environment, the things that Democrats en masse care about. And he won in a generally considered a red state, Georgia. In the book, in in your second chapter, you you talk about uh, in fact, you, you explicitly suggest that Democrats should be wary of focus groups and consultants. I, you know, I couldn't agree more, <laughs> but uh, please elaborate, well, either of you. Yeah, I will turn that over to Daryl because he he runs focus groups and he is a consultant. So he yeah. is the one who put him down. 
Okay. So I do this for brands all the time. I'm running focus groups even today. But what I see the way Democrats use them is kind of backwards and different from how Republicans use them. So Democrats right now will look, will go to focus groups and say, what do people care about? What are the issues on people's minds? What should I be talking about to reach them? That's, and they listen to that. And that's good. I guess we should know that, but that's different from sort of leading and telling them what we care about as a, as a brand, as a party. And so you're talking about essentially push polls. Yeah. Using focus groups as push polls. I mean, this is what, uh, what's his name? The Republican who's on Fox News all the time does with his little focus groups. Yeah. Frank Frank, Luntz. Frank Luntz. Exactly. Yeah. I find myself yelling at the TV when he does this because, you know, he's not really running a focus group. He's running a push poll. Well, they go to their their base and say, these are the things we want to talk about. They make them up. Critical race theory is a great example. Right. It didn't exist. It's not something that came from their voters, right? They said, we are going to make this an issue. And then they message it and they, they put it out there. And then lo and behold, you end up hearing it back in focus groups. So I think Democrats can do better and say, these are the values that we know people care about. We actually have a great product to sell here. If you can think of the product versus the brand, people, you know, if you take the Democratic branding away, people really agree with our Democratic stances on the environment, healthcare, social security, all these things that we just mentioned. But as soon as you kind of layer them together or try to put them as a Democratic brand, it falls apart a little bit. Yeah. And that's where I think we can say, we have this great product, but we need to create, say, what are those messages that are going to get those across to people in a very clear, emotional, powerful way that will show these are the things that Democrats care about. The first time that you came up in the conversation with Dimitri was around uh, defund the police. We can play that clip here. On crime, what are they going to say? And what they are going to say is that there is a currently sitting member of the Democratic Party in the United States Congress who openly and expressly advocates for the end of funding to police forces. And there are quite a number of other Democrats who are in power now in administration positions and in Congress who don't agree with that extreme position of there should be no funding of the police, but when asked if they believe in defund the police, will give a complicated answer other than, no, we should fund the police. Now, my friend Anat Shankar Osorio, who's another person that we have funded in the past, will tell you that if we say the words fund the police, that's bad because it's increasing the salience of an issue. And if you run a poll real time and you ask people, hey, Nothing else is going on in the world. It's more than a year away from the next election. I'd like you to take a poll and you drop in the phrase fund the police out of nowhere. That will probably raise the salience of of crime in that survey. And you will read the poll and you'll say, ah, saying the words fund the police or attacking the defund the police movement from the center left, attacking the left. Those things actually reduce the poll results that you get in this survey a year and a half away from election day. What would be your response? Is he accurately kind of capturing your take that you shouldn't say fund the police? He's definitely capturing that part. I think that there's a lot going on in that clip. So can I kind of take it apart? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So first on the saliency point, one of the things that happens in research, and again, this is one of the perils of in-channel testing and in-field testing is much, much more expensive and you can't you know, it requires doing most things after the fact. So you do have to test things in survey and in RCT. I do it as well. So I'm not saying I don't. It's just you have to recognize what the limitations of it are. 
if you have a survey and you're basically out of a clear blue sky saying to people, hey, what do you think about defunding the police or what do you think about funding the police? You're already introducing that idea to them in order to register their approval or disapproval of that idea where they may or may not necessarily have that top of mind. To wit, I have been part of a consortium called the Research Collaborative, where we have been conducting qualitative research. So not quant, but focus groups, two to four focus groups a week, every single week since October of 2000. So when you add all those people together, that is a pretty large number of people. And we frequently ask them, and this, you know, is anyone from base voters of various races, ages, configurations, genders, etc. And then also swing voters, same thing, different kinds of configurations over all of these years and groups. When you ask them, what is your beef with Democrats? I can tell you that none of them, and I really do mean none, the first idea that comes into their own head is they want to defund the police. Their beef with Democrats, I mean, I would allow you to guess, I'm sure that you can guess, that they're slow, that they're bad on the economy, that they spend too much money, that, you know, a whole litany of things. And in fact, one of the fun exercises we often engage in is we ask them, if you had to liken Democrats to an animal, what animal would you pick? We do the same thing for Republicans. And generally speaking, the animals that they give us for the Democrats is a snail, a sloth, a turtle, some permutation of a thing that doesn't do much and does it slowly. (laughs) So people don't volunteer that answer about Democrats. Now, where does this feeling and idea, and here I think that that Dimitri rightly made this point, the thing that people think about Democrats doesn't come out of what Democrats say. I frequently say that would be a wonderful world and I'd be on vacation in it, but it's not our world. The thing that people think about Democrats is made out of all sorts of impressionistic things out in the world, a combination of the media, but also what is said about Democrats. So, this saliency question, that that is what that point is, is sort of, it's difficult in a survey to actually capture how do people feel about this thing, because in order to capture it, you have to introduce the thing. Does that make sense? Yes, I, I guess his argument is the thing is out there. Like, it's a big thing. Republicans are talking about it. So, you don't have a choice. So, yes, of course, when the thing is out there, you're going to have to have a response to it. And so I want to say two different things. The first is, if you want to win the debate, you have to set the terms of the debate. As long as you are responding to their terms of debate, you are already losing. And so the trouble with a defund the police, fund the police kind of back and forth is that regardless of which one of those you're tossing out there, by definition, you're making people think about the police, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that is most of what either of those phrases are made out of. When we think about what is going on with people's feelings around crime or quote-unquote law and order or policing, yes, they are concerned about those things, absolutely. But the reason that they're concerned about those things, the actual underlying psychological motivation and feeling is a desire for safety. 
what people actually want in their life is to feel safe. And they have been taught, and we see it, it's very evident, it would be silly to deny it, they have been taught to make a connection between safety and police, that exists and is real, but the hunger and the desire is not for police, it is for safety. And so there is a different way to approach this message. It is not a sort of A or B, defund or fund. It is understanding what voters actually want and coming up with a message, which I'm happy to share with you, that actually talks about that and delivers it. Because if you attempt to say, no, I want to fund the police, then basically what you've done is you've said to them, okay, the way to think about this safety issue, the way to think about this thing that you desire is how much police is there going to be? And regardless of what you support or espouse or say, they are always going to pick RoboCop over mall security if you tell them the way to think about this election is who is going to be toughest, because that is the Republican brand strength. You've basically said, we agree to have your debate. We're going to, you know, play soccer. We're going to pick the side of the field where we're staring into the sun and try to make goals that way. Doesn't work. Anything else that jumped out at you in the interview with Dimitri that I didn't get to that you wanted to hit? Yeah. What I want to say, and in a way, This is partially a reaffirmation of some of what he said, with which I agree, and in some ways, perhaps a difference that we share between us, is that, first of all, politics isn't solitaire, and so we need to recognize that people don't just hear from us, they hear from the other side. And our message needs to act not just as a motivation, but also as a rebuttal to what the other side is saying. And I think that he would probably agree with that. I just think that the approach of doing that by presenting ourselves as essentially the B minus version of our opposition, right? They say they want to secure the borders. We say we want to secure the borders. They say they want to fund the police. We say we want to fund the police. That's not actually a rejoinder. That's not actually a, hey, you don't want Pepsi, you want Coke, It's basically saying, hey, no, Pepsi is good and we are also Pepsi. That's very confusing for people. It's demobilizing for our base and it doesn't draw that contrast that we actually require with swing voters. And so I just want to really hit that point hard. The other point that I really want to hit hard is it's really challenging to break a signal through the noise. Getting a message out into the world, let alone getting it repeated and so it can actually be heard, is one of the toughest things that we have, even if we land on some kind of perfect message that we have, you know, focus grouped and RCT'd and surveyed, and we are absolutely certain that this 100-word paragraph is the greatest 100 words that have ever been compiled together. If the base won't repeat that, if they won't wear the equivalent of the red MAGA hat, that means that the middle isn't going to hear it. Because even if they see your one ad that is perfectly crafted that one time, they are also seeing 8 billion other ads and seeing flyers and hearing other things. And so if you don't attend to what your base actually believes and is willing to repeat, 
you can't persuade the middle. If your words don't spread, they don't work. That's sort of the underappreciated piece of this. Reed Hoffman doesn't have enough money to get those paid ads in front of enough people for it to matter. You have to get people to do the work for you. And to do the work, they got to be a little bit motivated. Is that a good way of putting it? Yeah. I mean, all of the money in the world does not actually create saturation. And things that people see in a TV ad are far less convincing to them than social proof. Social proof is what I sometimes call the middle school theory of messaging. It's the fact that people believe the thing they think people like them believe. And so, for example, when it was socially sanctioned and even sort of widely okay to think, you know, gay men should not be able to get married, right? This was not that long ago. Or lesbian women should not be able to get married. It's anathema. It's, or marijuana should be illegal. Yeah, marijuana should be illegal. You know, there's all sorts of social attitudes that have changed really, really rapidly that we've witnessed. And part of that change is this kind of broad idea, let's take marriage equality, of pivoting away from this is a really contentious issue and people feel conflicted about it to essentially messaging from inevitability and saying love is love. Instead of saying, you know, this is our right and we should have this right and this is about being equal and this is about this, the the kind of taking your policy out in public. And instead claiming the moral high ground and having a message that a person in line at the grocery store might actually repeat to someone else. Unless you're there, you're not getting saturation. If you're not getting repetition saturation, you are not getting social proof and you cannot move the needle. Well, this study done by Jacobin YouGov and the Center for Working Class Politics, where you're on the board, had a great method. Instead of asking people whether they preferred Biden or Trump, the poll described a pair of hypothetical candidates, each with a biography and a campaign platform, and asked respondents which one they preferred. And the respondents uh, were not eligible voters or registered voters. They were working class swing voters and what the scientists called low propensity voters, non-voters, we call them. Democrats don't need to win over all the working class Trump supporters. They just get some swing voters to swing back and get some non-voters to vote Democratic. That would be enough to win. And if Biden wins 50% of the non-college vote next year, He will almost certainly be re-elected, we are told. And if he wins only 45%, he will probably lose. And there's one more relevant thing here. Progressives have won a lot since Bernie's 2016 campaign. But those victories have been concentrated in the well-educated, relatively high income, and heavily Democratic districts. Even when progressives have won primaries in working class areas, they've generally done so without increasing total turnout or winning over new working class voters, which has been one of the progressive goals going way back, especially with Bernie. So overall, progressives have not yet made good on that one key goal to transform and expand the electorate significantly. So. This research project was one of yours. What did you focus on? What we're trying to do in this research and all of our research uh, is approximate 
real scenarios. And we're also interested in congressional races, not to say presidential politics isn't important, but for exacting a lot of things we want, uh, we want to see and win. That means winning Congress and getting particularly a majority in the Senate. So that, but we were really interested in this comparing uh, more moderate positions and talking points uh, to more progressive policies. This sort of idea, and it gets reinforced by sort of centrist members of the Democratic coalition, that to win, especially in purple states, in swing states, in working class districts, you need to run to the middle. You need moderate, uh, you need moderate policies, you need to moderate. And we just, we have not found that to be exactly the case. So let's talk about the survey findings about messaging. What kind of issues did you find working class voters prefer? So the biggest takeaway, and here, if we could have just one message, I think, to deliver to uh, Democrats, it's jobs. Running on jobs, running with populist rhetoric around jobs policies, those are really popular. So we had two different jobs policies we looked at. The sort of more moderate position was incentivizing small businesses to create uh, jobs or provide job training programs. And the other was this federal jobs guarantee. Now, both of those, those jobs policies across everything we looked at, we had another list of economic policies, we had some social policies. It was those jobs policies that were most popular Uh, both that moderate and progressive position uh, were popular across the board. Really interestingly, we saw some pretty uh, fascinating class divisions as well. So the jobs guarantee was really popular with working class respondents, not just Democratic respondents, but also Republicans and independents, which we think is really, really important and really fascinating uh, and not as popular among among higher class respondents, which was another thing we tried to do in the survey was really pick apart, uh, pick apart and look at the class profile of, uh, of respondents and capture that in different ways. So a federal jobs guarantee you found to be kind of the number one issue that appealed to working class swing voters and working class low propensity voters. But Don't Democrats already know the power of jobs as an issue? Don't most Democrats run on jobs? You might think so. But if we are looking at candidates, what they said, particularly in 2022 primaries, only about 18 percent really talk about jobs in a concrete way. Uh, And websites, you know, those are uh, open spaces. They can include sort of the kitchen sink on there when it actually gets to what kind of policies they're going to put their weight behind and push forward. You know, another thing we looked at in the article, uh, despite the sort of, I think, many ways surprising popularity of a jobs guarantee, given that, you know, it's not something we hear Democratic candidates talk about very often, yet it's strikingly popular. The closest you get in Congress are things, you know, pilot programs trying to create, you know, possible job training for similar types of activities. So, yes, Democrats talk about jobs, but also they could be talking about them much, much more given, I think, what we know about the history of the party and uh, the working class backbone and the popularity of these messages. So we actually, we have another survey coming out, uh, another report coming out soon where we broke down. We looked at things like uh, job training, more of a moderate type program, ending bad trade deals. So thinking about manufacturing uh, deals like NAFTA, uh, uh, $15 minimum wage, Looking at sort of the package of policies included in the uh, the PRO Act, so the right to unionize, increased protections for gig workers, 
uh, and also incentivizing job creation within manufacturing. Now, all of those, basically, this is this is a little preview of what's coming out, but all of those were basically majority support. Uh, uh, you start to lose some Republicans as you raise the minimum wage. We looked at 15, we looked at 17, but basically all of those have majority support, including those more progressive. Uh, I picked out, what did I pick out? Uh, uh, providing more protections for gay workers. That was in the 60s, uh, between 60 and 70% support among Democrats and Republicans. So Democrats don't talk about it enough and they could talk about it more and in very concrete terms that appeal to work to uh, particularly working class voters. We say we want to be challenged. We say we want to hear all sides, but that's not how we act when we seek out podcasts. I'm Mike Pesca, host of The Gist, and I'm crazy enough to think that we are up to the challenge. I challenge myself. I challenge my guests. I invite you in. We'll talk about such issues as masks. I mean, I know they work, but on a population level, the evidence is less than clear. Mass shootings, horrible, but they account for less than 1% of all shootings. Do we do ourselves and our society a disservice when we focus on them? These questions and more explored and challenged every day on The Gist, wherever you get your podcasts. I do empirical testing and research and analysis to try to figure out why it is that certain messages resonate where others falter. So I will analyze current discourse on some issue looking at how advocacy talks about it, how the opposition, media, where it is applicable, popular culture, and then look for patterns in language to understand what are the metaphors at play, what are the frame semantics, how is it construed on the left, how is it construed on the right, and from there draw hypotheses around, oh, it seems like this is a problematic metaphor. And if we keep talking in this way, it will lead people to conclusions that are not progressive. And then from there, we do testing. We actually create different kinds sometimes of experiments, which I can describe, and then sometimes more traditional testing that I think listeners will be more used to, like surveys, online dial surveys. We also do qualitative research to try to figure out what are the wording choices, orderings, and images that will be of greatest impact. And then finally, because it turns out to not be enough to just do giant research projects and hand people talking points, say this, don't say that, I actually help create full-on campaigns. So that means digital ads, memes, slogans, branding, color choices, in order to bring that better messaging to life. So if we start with my premise, which is that we need to find better ways of talking about voting, do we do a good enough job talking about voting? I feel like we're not. So first, let's just state what is likely obvious, which is, that when we are in an era, at least in the United States, in which we have one party that is acting as a political party, i.e. attempting to court voters, and then we have essentially a faction that is trying to keep people from voting, some of our issue is not a messaging problem. No one in any place should be standing in line for any number of hours in order to exercise their most basic and fundamental rights. So I do want to say that. And 
the stuff that is under our control, i.e. how we speak about this incredibly important act of voting, the words that we use, the images, the choices that we make. So yes, we need to be doing a better job. And the first thing that we need to recognize, and this is hard for deeply politically engaged people to believe, but what all of the research and experimentation over decades, because voting behavior is one of the most studied aspects of political communications, what we know of voting behavior is that it's actually a matter of habituation. I like to tell people that vote is a verb. It's an action that we need people to take rather than a belief that we need people to hold. And so oftentimes we think, oh, the message should be about this issue. We will talk about the climate or we will talk about reproductive rights or we will talk about schools and we will target that to this particular population that cares most about that issue. And that seems like a totally valid hypothesis that you should, you know, find that issue sweet spot or we'll have candidate focused messaging and that's what will drive people out. But in point of fact, what we find at the risk of sounding just tautological, people who vote vote and people who don't vote don't vote. It's a little bit like flossing. So it's really more, is this your habit or isn't this? And so what that means is that the most effective way to get more people to vote more habitually is actually to talk about voting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So, well, who is doing a good job talking about voting? I think if we look at what just happened in the last two U.S. elections, so I'm speaking about 2020 and 2018, what we saw is, and, you know, how many times can we overuse and abuse this word during the course of the Trump years and the pandemic? So apologies, but unprecedented. <laughs> unprecedented turnout. And when I say unprecedented turnout, when you look at the numbers over time since folks have been measuring turnout in elections, so going way, way, way back, the bump up in 18 and 20 is double the size of any previous bump up. So we're talking about sort of like lightning strike kind of change in level of participation. Why was that? Well, part of that, of course, was being in decided opposition to Trump. But we also need to note that turnout was up in 2020 among all sorts of voters. Turnout was up all around. So we look at who was doing a good job, who was truly well and mobilizing people. Well, let's look at the states that we flipped. Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia. Georgia. What did they say to people? In the recall, which happened in January after the November election, they said to voters, our work is not done yet. Our work is not done yet is a voter agency message. It is a message that positions as the central figure in the frame, not the party, not the candidate, not the opposing party, nor the threat from the opposing party, but the voter themselves. And so what effective voter messaging does is it builds a sense of agency and it speaks to the voter about their own power. So for example, 
in 2020, we turned out in record numbers and we delivered stimulus checks and lifted however many million kids out of poverty. And in 22, we're going to do it again. You are the vital voters that are going to deliver for this country rather than XYZ party is going to deliver for you. Mm, that's uh, very powerful. And like you said, it empowers the voter. It puts the onus on taking action onto the voter to come to the poll and cast a ballot. We've just heard clips today, starting with How We Win, describing interviews with 2020 voters and the ideological political landscape. Future Hindsight discussed the big lie and how those kinds of lies should be refuted. The Tom Hartman program discussed the need for better branding or conveying the big ideas the Democratic Party should stand for. Deconstructed spoke with Anna Shanker Osorio about a variety of political messaging issues. Start Making Sense discuss the messages that help win elections, and Future Hindsight look at how to form the habit of voting. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from How We Win diving into some of the political messaging in Florida. We were able to spend time with Floridians over the course of their entire legislative session, from the far left to the far right, and everyone in between, how they were processing just a flurry of aggressive extreme legislation on everything from gender-affirming care to education policy to tax policy to the ability for DeSantis to run and not resign. We learned quite a bit. And how we went also looked into the messaging hurdles women face when running for president. About 800 participants hand-coded all of these responses across the nation and found that, yes, indeed, Women are significantly underrepresented when people are asked about their ideal leader. In fact, women only come up 23% of the time. And this is among Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents. Now, to wrap up today, speaking of the importance of supporting independent progressive media for the sake of helping us get our message out, not that I timed it this way on purpose, we're kicking off our overdue membership drive here at Best of Left. This time, I figured I wouldn't overthink how best to entice new members and just decided to offer an unprecedented 20% discount on memberships for this month only. Uh, in fact, I don't think I've ever offered any discount before, probably because I'm not good at business, but that changes this month. For context, we should probably be running membership drives about twice a year. I mean... PBS and NPR have been showing the way my whole life, so I should have figured that out earlier as well. But I think it's now been about a year and a half since our last fundraiser, so we're in slightly worse shape than usual, or, or maybe more than slightly. We should have had a membership drive last summer, but maybe you recall that on the 4th of July, one year past, I released episode 1500, in which I tried to convey almost every good political idea I'd ever heard of or thought. If you haven't heard it, I definitely recommend it. Well, that episode was weeks in preparation, and I think I was in recovery for weeks afterward, so I forgot to have a membership drive around that time. And then the winter rolled around, and we should have had an end-of-year membership drive, but I have ADD, and that's exactly when I started having other ideas of major projects I should launch and started working on them one at a time before discarding each for a new idea that I thought was better. Classic ADD. So here we are. 
a year later and in somewhat desperate need of an infusion of new members. We are a small team working on a very small budget, so every new member really does make a difference. And right now, you can save 20% on a membership for as long as you keep it. So that means it's not 20% off for a year and then the price goes up or anything. When you sign up now, you lock in that discount for the life of the membership, which is also a great reason to never cancel. Just saying. To sign up, you can go through our site at bestofleft.com slash support, or if you're already a Patreon user, you can find us there as well. Of course, there's a link in the show notes where you'll find all the details. And don't forget about the benefits. Members get ad-free versions of the show that also have bonus clips and chapter markers embedded in them to make identifying and navigating the clips easier. And on top of all that, we do roundtable discussion bonus episodes featuring all the minds behind the show. I mean, if you like the regular episodes, you have producers Dion and Aaron to thank for it. And you can really only get to know them by listening to our bonus episodes in which we talk about substantive news stories and long-form articles, all while trying to make each other laugh. Mostly so we don't cry, but that's basically what it's like to be a progressive in the world today. I'm sure you can relate. So get all of that at a discount and support the show when we really need it, all at bestoftheleft.com support. Thanks in advance. That's going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in. I would love to hear your thoughts or questions about today's episode or anything else you like. You can leave us a voicemail or send us a text at 202-999-3991 or simply email me to j at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and LaWindy for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who've already supported the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com slash support. And if you want to continue the discussion, you can join our Discord community. There's a link to join in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.